0: I have an important guest, Raghu Kavale, who is senior VP of Infosys, but also in his uh, in the current context, uh, he's an AI enthusiast, a pioneer in digital medicine. Uh, teaches at uh, teaches AI at Manipal University, IIT Kharagpur, and a long list of other uh, affiliations that uh, I will put up on the on the web. Uh, but welcome, welcome to the show, Raguji. It's an honor and a pleasure to be
1: here. And uh, just to clarify, any views here do not reflect any institutions I'm affiliated with, including
0: Infosys. And these are all my personal opinions. Absolutely perfect. This is what, how I like it, because then we can be free and with, with we are exploring brainstorming. That's the reason
1: both of us are seekers of the truth.
0: Absolutely. absolutely. Seekers of the future, if you would like to say it. So uh, I wanted to start by saying that, you know, AI is inevitable and it's not a question of, you know, do we want it or not? We obviously do want it. Uh, but having said that, uh, it, on the one hand, uh, India needs to be uh, a world leader in AI because it's so important and catch up uh, uh, with China and others. At the, at the other, on the other hand, uh, if there were too much AI and haphazard AI, Uh, then it could also create social problems like unemployment and things of that sort. So, I wanted to get your uh, opinion, uh, Ragu, on uh, how to tread uh, between the danger of too little AI, which means we'll be obsolete, and too much AI, which means we could create uh, employment issues and disruptions in society. How do you think, uh, as a thought leader, uh, not representing any institution, but just as a thought leader, How? What are some guidelines? What are some thoughts that you think of in this way on this issue?
1: So Rajiv, let me meander around a little bit and uh, share a few thoughts. You know, uh, very interestingly, uh, if you go back to high school or our first degrees, we read about the geological time spans and how life evolved on Earth. And the first sort of Uh, I would say a living mechanism which came about because of water and oxygen was during the Cambrian era. And we had fishes and the first, uh, you know, sort of uh, boned creatures coming out. And today, of course, you have man. And it has taken, I think, almost about 50 million years, 50 million years or so to reach that. AI is in some sort of a situation like that. Now we had the entire information technology revolution uh, starting right from the silicon chip, which happened just in 1940s. Uh, we had uh, you know, the PCs, we had the mainframes, we have the cloud and so on and so forth, which all were the oxygen and the water to artificial intelligence. To answer your question, I do not think we get to choose. It is, I think, a Darwinian evolution. So, we obviously need to be the fittest to survive. So, I would think AI is going to happen. Like I said, we are just in the Cambrian system and you're going to see a compression of that. And then the next hundred years, what happened in millions of years is just going to happen in the next hundred years quantum computing, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that being said, how do we prepare our society? It's a wonderful question. So I'd sort of rephrase your question to say, how do I prepare uh, prepare the Indian society? Now, being a teacher sort of gives me a lot of insight into the minds of students. And uh, my day job, I deal with a lot of the government projects including the huge GST project, the income tax project. Those are all huge digital projects which have sort of changed or are still changing the face of my country. So the way I look at it, sir, I would classify it into three, four portions. One is how do you build, build capability or capacity to understand what is happening? Can you influence it? Maybe yes, maybe no, because it takes a life of its own sometimes, but you need to at least understand it. Number two, how do you set, how do you, how do the leaders who are already there in the seat of power, when I say seat of power, I'm just not saying the government, but even in the private sector, in the industry, uh, in policy making, how do they understand this? How do they set the right set of directions? And that includes society leaders also. And three, how do you use it? Because you need to get to use it also. So I would think that there are three uh, three facets to it. Of course, one can break down each facet into a number of sub-facets. So to make it short, because I'd, li- I'd like to listen to you also comment on this, I would say when... Uh, the Infosys, TCS, Wipros, everybody, we started our journey about 30, 40 years back. We didn't have enough people to code. So that's why huge campuses were set up. A lot of people became coders. Good. But then, is coding sufficient with autocoding almost becoming a reality with GPT-3 and all that? Should we be relooking at fundamental math and physics? Because if you look at machine learning, which is the core of artificial intelligence today, it is more of math. I think in my mind, I wouldn't say it's a recommendation from my side, but I always tell the youngsters whom I talk to, get your math right. Because what you're trying to solve with coding is a math problem. Second, why do you need to get your physics right? Because quantum computing is already on the horizon. And quantum computing is a combination of math, physics, and computing. So you need to get that right too. Now, let's move to the people who use it. Now, one has to understand, I'm I'm talking with the limited context of what I know today and plus three to five years where I can see algorithms taking over a lot of stuff. I think we need to, the planners, developers need to understand that there are a lot of biases that go into these algorithms. So that's just one portion of the game. Number two, as a society, how do you prepare, how do you democratize data? Because you create an algorithm, you want to train the algorithm, Now you need to make the data available to either the startup, or to the student, or to the public policy maker. Now, that's going to be a very big step. Because I would say, uh, in the Western world, in the US for example, you have finders keepers. Whoever gets the data gets to keep it. Maybe we need a more, for the public good, sort of an approach on data. Those are all conversations like you rightly uh, saw, I saw your, the blurb of your book. We need more conversation on that. Okay, because it's, it's not very evident how this data is going to come into play when algorithms come into play. And lastly, how do you sort of use this? Because it, 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 you are going to use it for very very complex problems, and when you use it for complex problems, there are going to be limitations. Do you have the courage to overrule an overrule a recommendation by some artificial engine? I don't know. So those are three buckets which are broadly placed. This
0: excellent. So my, I mean, you have given such a amazing. Very, very rarely I get somebody who has the depth and the breadth and the clarity to connect all of it. Very, very amazing. And I'm so delighted we're having this conversation. So let me also go through it uh, bit by bit. Uh, I like your uh, your statement that uh, the survival of the fittest in the Darwinian sense is now happening with AI accelerating this kind of evolution. I really like that. I, I say this a lot. And Raghu, I will tell you, people don't like to hear it. And I'm glad that you said it because I was going to say, uh, I think we have to face it. I think we have to face it. So uh, it's better we face it and then we deal with it. We brainstorm rather than quietly. Some problems happen when Darwinian evolution happens. Survival of the fittest. When we say survival of the fittest, it means that the unfit don't don't make it. It also means that it is not true to say that we upscale and train everybody. In AI, and everybody will be fit, and all 1.3 billion Indians and 8 billion human beings, which will be 12 billion, are going to be fine. Because when you look at the Darwinian uh, situation, a lot of the thing, a lot of the creatures don't make it, and that's just tough life. That is how it is. So I like your thinking is pragmatic. Let's face, let's face, like a clinician. is doing a stress test on the patient says, these are the diagnostics, this is what's likely to happen, this is what the model says, let's just face it. He's not there to give good news and say everything is going to be hunky-dory, he has to tell him the truth. So, as scientists and analytical people, both you and I have to uh, make this point very clear that AI is an accelerator of a Darwinian survival of the fittest kind of evolution which will produce new species that will be much stronger like Darwinian evolution does and many of the that are not so fit will perish, and that is life. That is how life is. So I'm very glad we are on the same page on that. Now, uh, the 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 issue, uh, uh, the, I, and I will come to biases, the quantum computing, uh, the the whole data democracy. I will come to all of those one by one. So the issue, the first uh, issue I want to uh, put on the table uh, is uh, uh, when India was software leader uh, with. And not naming any particular companies, although I'll just make a remark that I had something to do with the early rise of TCS. Uh, I was in the 70s on the client side, the first major client that brought in a whole lot of TCS people for uh, developing software in the United States. I was a project manager from the client side. Uh, and and uh, the success of that project was awesome. And nobody in the American system un- believed that uh, Indian programmers could come and do this. And so we hired them a second time and a third time, and this made TCS like a, a big deal way back in the, in the 70s. So uh, so I, I have a fondness for that industry, and, and I, I'm very happy that this industry uh, took India into another dimension. However, uh, after India used labor arbitrage to get ahead uh, and create middle class and create a lot of technocrats, uh, In the last 10 years, it is China that started getting ahead of India in AI. So, the question I have is, what did China do right that India didn't do? Such that India lost its lead. India had a lead in AI, in software. We were proud of the fact that we're English-speaking, so we can get into clients easier in the Western world. We were proud of the fact that we have so many STEM people, math people, and Indians assimilate well. All those kind of things were absolutely true. Uh, but we, we had a lead. Very clearly, we were the superpower in software. And we lost it in the sense that now, when you look at AI conferences, Chinese are big. When you look at AI patents, when you look at AI investments, intellectual property, whether they begged, borrowed or steal, stole or whether they did it in the honest way, I don't know. I mean, there is a whole controversy on that. But however they did it, they have now surpassed us. So, would you care to comment on why this happened? Okay,
1: it's, uh, There are two, two, three portions in what you said, sir. First, in the Darwinian theory, I do believe that there will be winners and losers. Of course, there will be some, if you're not going to sort of adapt, you become a lesser being. Okay, for example, a charioteer who drove the horses the other day or the last century, possibly today does something for a petty sum of money on Marina Beach in Bombay. Okay, Uh, right. So I would say, obviously, nobody will be eliminated. And one does wish that the 1.2 billion Indians and 8 billion people of the world, really all of them scale up. But then, yeah, as you said, Darwin is going to take its toll let me come to the second portion now has china won the race for AI I have a fundamental disagreement the reason is that we really need to be a little uh, I would say questioning of the data coming out and patents are important there's no doubt about it uh, certain things are important and uh, our friends, the Chinese, are fairly intelligent. But has the last word been written on the race, on the race for artificial intelligence? I'm not too sure, sir, because in my opinion, it has just started. Okay, obviously there are certain uh, systems, economic systems, where. We, we, like the United States, have for-profit companies and need to invest in something which gives us the money here and now, okay? Which sort of constrains us against putting capital into what we think is 10 years into the future, okay? So that's an economic model. Having said that, it's a question of whether forced allocation of capital and resources into something you see into the future is good or a gradual movement towards that is good. Okay. Uh, where I differ with you sir is that I think the way India is going, yes we do need to make some strides, we do need to put some capital, we do need to do a whole lot of things and uh, we should always be paranoid. The famous book only the paranoid survive. Okay and uh, but i would say that the race the race has just begun and you are talking about a marathon and you are judging us after maybe a kilometer into the marathon or a mile into the marathon
0: so uh, okay i am i am happy to hear because i, I want uh, optimism and uh, i I'm, I'm in the same boat as an indian uh, Uh, And and I take this perspective that while China may be leading is just one kilometer into a marathon and so let's not be judged. We have good resources. So the, the, the the shift, the shift, sorry, I interrupted. More importantly
1: is the economic model. Whether forced allocation, into a particular area of research or into a particular area is a good thing or it's not a good thing. okay Or should market determine it?
0: Yeah, yeah I will I will want to talk about that. I want to talk about that in a moment also. Uh, uh, but the China's China took also the path of wage arbitrage in manufacturing. Uh, after all, they went and sold cheap factory labor to the Americans and said manufacture here. And all the American companies went there. But China did one thing differently. They took the profits from wage arbitrage and they reinvested a certain portion of that profit into futuristic thinking. I mean, I know people 15-20 years ago, my friends, Indians also, and many NRIs living uh, in the top in the US got hired to go to China. Uh, Because Chinese said, let's invest in futurist technologies, whether it's solar power, it's nanotechnology, it's artificial intelligence, it's uh, all of these things. I know some brilliant people in physics because I was originally trained as a physicist before I became computer scientist. So I've kept track of some of my old friends who are doing quantum computing sitting in China because they are are into this whole thing. So China has uh, made some very large billion dollar bets early on. And that takes courage. So you see, while the market forces have their benefit, uh, it takes a a risk-taking, big government thing to say, we will roll the dice on many bets that are billion-dollar bets. And uh, China has rolled its dice and put its whole future on its AI supremacy. and, And their target is by 2025, they want to match or exceed the United States in AI. And that is what rang the alarm bells. In Washington and so much of the trade war started because then the Americans started suddenly waking up that they got our defense secrets. They're having military advantages. They're doing all kinds of things. So, yes, I agree with you. The race is not over. But China has a head start and China has deep pockets. They made a huge amount of foreign reserve. Uh, and, and, and they are investing in a big way, billion-dollar bets in these kind of technologies. Uh, and uh, so uh, so let's not, we can't underestimate them. But at the same time, I have a lot of faith in the Indian brains. I think Indian brains are very good. It's a question of can we, can we harness the Indian brains for made in India technology for in Indian intellectual property. Right now, a very large percentage of the brilliant AI people go overseas and they work for, they are, they are building American intellectual property. And the ones in India are working for, you know, Microsoft and Google and, uh, and you know, all these kind of companies uh, re- developing while the brains are Indian, but the intellectual property belongs to, uh, belongs to somebody else. So how do you feel about the fact that traditionally India was a land of R&D in humanities and sciences, in places like Nalanda and many things. And we were the producers and exporters of knowledge. And that's what created a huge manufacturing economy and a huge uh, prosperity. And now we are ex- importers, we are, ne- we are importing technology. We, have, we import Rafale jets because it costs a lot of money because those jets have the uh, you know, AI in it, multiple targets and all those kind of things. So how do you feel about uh, this, uh, this reversal where instead of exporting technology, we become a net importer of technology and to change this around is, requires infrastructure, requires very deep pockets, requires a change of incentive systems. How do you feel about that? So let me, uh,
1: so let me uh, fill you in on something that's happening, which uh, I can lead you through a few entrepreneurs, etc. And I'm talking purely of the city I live in called Bangalore, and I'm sure it's replicating itself elsewhere. In Bangalore, we have at the moment at least 20,000 startups. We have at least about uh, 30 to 40 large homegrown venture capital companies, which have by people who have benefited from the old IT wave, so to speak. The Azeem Premjis of the world, uh, Mr. Narayan Murthy, uh, Ms. Mondas Pai, Mr. Shivudal, Mr. Chris Gopalakrishnan. I know some of them. I don't know some of them. And a lot of them are focusing on artificial intelligence. In fact, uh, you could go to LinkedIn and look look at Stellaris. We ran a competition over the last two months called AI for Biz. That is AI for B2B businesses. We had close to about 108 applications. And we wanted them to be of some magnitude. And of course, we announced the winners. It's there on the social media. And this was run by Stellaris Partners, which is headed by a guy who was just relocated from the valley to India. Now, the way I look at it, Dr. Malhotra, is, yes, what all you said is true. But when I see the next generation, and many of these are boys who have just come out of IITs, Maybe about less than 10 years back. And they went to the MITs and the Carnegie Mellons of the world. And some of them are Indian citizens, but work in the Bay Area. Some of them have come back to Bangalore. Some of them have one foot here and one foot there. So the world of AI is sort of changing. We are looking, like Jim Collins says in his book, Good to Great. There is a lot of activity happening in AI, like something inside an egg, okay, which, will, which at some particular point in time will come out. Now, should we be doing more of that? Yes, obviously, we should be doing more of that. Now, let's come to the second portion. You said we have become a net technology importer. Yes, we have lagged behind in a lot of our manufacturing. I did spend my early decade of my life my working life and manufacturing it is rather unfortunate that due to combination of various reasons one is the rise of china our own labor laws so a lot of things we have not made as much stride in manufacturing and it comes back to the point that anything that is manufactured we obviously have to reach out to something hopefully you know There are a lot of government programs that are going on, like Make in India, etc., etc., which they should get corrected. But to answer your question, am I hopeful about the future? Yes, I am. I think the systems that two countries take could be different. One could be a centralized way where the government takes these huge decisions and says, I'm going to put a few hundreds of billions or billions of dollars behind something. Great. That's one system, nobody argues whether that's right or wrong. India's system is a little more local. You have 20,000 startups in one city, each having maybe about five, ten million 10 million dollars worth of funding. Some of them will go on to become the next TCS, the next Infosys, the next Wipro, whatever. Some of them will fade away. Okay. So I think that's the path we have chosen. And as I said, the marathon has just begun.
0: No, that's very good. That's very good. So, you know, with all the AI manpower India has, it's IBM who created Watson to sort of get ahead into the next stage—a product, uh, which is you know, when the product has clout, then now you go to your bank uh, clients and medical institutions, and you give them Watson. Uh, India could have, I wish India could have done uh, Watson. And then when you look at GPT-3, you know, it's very interesting. 20 years ago, a lot of uh, Sanskrit scholars studying Panini's Ashtadhyayi started getting uh, grants from the Western countries and then from Japan and China to uh, get into computational linguistics because they realized the potential of uh, uh, Sanskrit grammar, Panini's, as a sort of... uh, a kind of uh, you know canonical form, a kind of a you know a form where such that you could take a, you could understand the meaning of words, a very universal language, a uh, very universal grammar, very generative, uh, and and then they thought that okay, if you map uh, uh, if you map a, a language, natural language, into this computational form, uh, then you can translate it to something x, another language x y, and so on. So this. Digestion, I I use the term digestion. The digestion of uh, Sanskrit grammar into computational linguistics happened over 10 years. And I gave many talks. I gave talks at the Sanskrit department in JNU, in Delhi University. I gave talks at the NIIT chairman. Uh, He invited me once. And I said that, look, uh, the future, one of the future, uh, you know, big, uh, you know, killer apps will be a natural language translation and understanding meanings. And this is all the engine inside is panini and people don't recognize it. Now, of course, it is panini, modified, morphed and all that. But a lot of the inspiration and original ideas came from there. So it's a shame from, to me that the civilization that had so much, did not. we did not uh, adapt it and uh, make the applications ourselves. We did not come up with the game-changing natural language translations uh, apps ourselves. We did not do the GPT. Uh, we let others do it, and GPT is just one example. I mean, Google and Facebook and Microsoft—they all have their equivalents of uh, the GPT. So here is an example of innovation where we missed the boat. We—and this is a very recent example—and this is an example where you know uh, we, had, uh, we had the we had the 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 real DNA of this this whole system right in our own Sanskrit and and. You know, we, it, I think that it has to do with not connecting the dots and not putting things together. Like maybe the Sanskrit scholars are sitting in a cocoon and they are doing some something of their own. And maybe the tech guys are doing somewhere else. Although I know a lot of AI people who are Sanskrit scholars. I mean, they're Sanskrit scholars too. And so, I wonder the same brain has got, and you, the same brain has got the Sanskrit and, <laughs> and, and, and has got this AI. Uh, but we are happy to, I, I know fr- people uh, one of the top guys who was chair of sanskrit in uh, jnu at, at that time very proud that uh, he spent all his life going from this western country to that western country they're picking his brain they're doing seminars they're recording him on basically uh, panini's grammar and the audience that is sitting there not interested in learning sanskrit per se they are interested in developing computational linguistics what do you think of this lack of uh, innovation because this would not require capital this required uh, channeling and and required good for farsighted, uh, you know, people with research saying, okay, let's take a a certain number of people and pioneer in computational linguistics. And then we license it to everybody. We let all those Microsoft guys license it and pay us royalty for a change. What do you think of that?
1: That's a brilliant idea. I do believe in Sanskrit. I myself dabble in it. In fact, I'm, I'm working on something which is trying to make connections. As you said, it's a canonical language. There is a lot of math hidden in it. So Dr. Malotra, if you look at it very interestingly, and I'm going to delve a little bit into Hinduism right now, you have the Upanishads, you have the Vedas, you have the Gita, you have uh, the Vishnu Sarasthanam, you have whatever. Now, each one of this is obviously... There is some form of meaning in all of these things, OK? Now, obviously, AI is also going to help us. AI is also going to extract some meaning out of it. AI is also going to take that as the root language, OK? Now, the fact is that there are a few groups, and I'm associated with none of them in Manipal University itself. and. Uh, of course, there we are working on the saint philosopher from Urupi Ura, who established the Krishna temple. We are working on his works, but that doesn't mean that it's restricted to his works. But we are trying to find the linkage through the canonical language. Now, having done all that, I think there is a lot of sense in what you just said. I I do hope that with changing times, we sort of look at that into the future and say that this is the way to go.
0: That's wonderful. Wonderful. This itself is, uh, uh, makes the whole conversation worthwhile because when I find, when I meet a kindred spirit, it is such great uh, pleasure for me. Uh, Now, the, uh, the, the one thing that you, I want to take a point you made earlier regarding uh, central uh, planning and allocation of resources versus decentralized. When I came to the United States as a, a, a doctoral student in physics and then I switched to computer science in both fields, my professors had defense contracts. And they wanted me to get a government clear, uh, security clearance which I did so we could go to the Pentagon and this and that. I remember as a young student and all our students had, uh, were associated with some uh, professor and he was involved in some kind of a big defense contract. So, we were so excited that it's, education is not just reading and learning but it's also research and investigating and being part of a team and they're doing something very futuristic. I see that lacking in India. Uh, there's a small amount maybe but I think the US government has been an enabler and has been a force multiplier of R&D throughout America. And I want to talk about something I would call the, it has there is, there is something known as the military-industrial complex, Eisenhower coined that term. I would add another thing to the hyphen academics. I would say military-industrial-academic complex in the United States is very strong and one of the success factors. And China has replicated that. So, the in any major university the postgraduate students are uh, uh, in working with a professor and he's likely to have some kind of government contracts defense contracts so you know if you when you think about it the internet was started by the darpa the defense advanced research project agency it was called darpa net and then it they dropped the deed they called it arpanet and I, ha- I was an ARPANET user. Uh, I, I tell people the year in which I was using internet and they're saying, oh, you're a fool because there was no internet then. Well, it was not called internet. It had not been privatized, but it was available. The same thing, same protocol. So uh, besides that, they invented fiber optics. When I was in ITT as a corporate vice president, there was a Chinese gentleman with the adjacent office next to mine. He was pioneer of fiber optics and he got the Nobel Prize. He got He's one of the two or three who got the shared the Nobel Prize for fiber optics. And this was a defense department uh, grant that we had. The semiconductors uh, ch- chips made in Bell Labs and then all over the industry were defense contracts because they wanted to miniaturize for the space program and whatever else. Night goggles. ITT, we had a patent on night goggles uh, for the defense department. We had speech recognition because the cockpit of the F-16 the pilot uh, had to have his hands free so he could, he could do things with his hands and, and give vo- voice commands. So, there was a huge amount of research uh, we had uh, on, on speech recognition. So, driverless, in fact, more recently, driverless vehicles, it was a DARPA project. DARPA started a competition of, open to everybody. And so, people from Carnegie Mellon, people from Stanford, MIT, all these kind of places, they made teams. Uh, sort of like Formula One, but but this was to uh, drive across the Mojave Desert uh, from one point to the other in a driverless car uh, and, and then they would have winners. The first year they did it, and not a single car went more than a couple hundred feet. It all crashed, you know. Uh, but then next year became much better than much better. So, DARPA seeded this whole thing. Now, besides government academic collaboration, there is a huge government industry collaboration. So you look at all the McDonnell Douglas and you look at Boeing defense and you look at uh, IBM has, uh, you know, uh, government defense kind of a division. I mean, all the big tech giants have got divisions, huge divisions that are uh, classified Department of Defense kind of work. And so the defense people uh, looking one or two generations way ahead and, and on a speculative basis, throwing money on huge bets. Uh, are also also enriching the academic world on one side and the uh, private industry on the other side. And then to connect the three parts of the triangle, the other link is between between academics and industry. So, you'll also find a lot of people in the academic world in the United States who have uh, business contracts, corporate contracts, in pharmaceuticals, in computers, in all kinds of things. So, if you look at the triangle, you know, military, industrial academic complex in the united states if somebody asked me what are some of the big success factors why united states is so ahead in technology i would say this this triangular relationship is one of them whereas in india they are separate silos a separate silos the drdo is separate on its own uh, and they hardly ever maybe rarely sometimes do work with the industry but it is low tech they give, have the manufacture stuff and so on uh, and hardly ever with the industry and then you also academics and, and you also find that very few academics have, uh, you know, industry contracts of any significance. And if they have they are tiny little small scale things. So I would say that in India, there are separate silos for military, for industry, for academics. Now, China has taken the American model because I know people in China who are in the academic world and they are working with the People's Liberation Army uh, who supporting them. Even Jack Ma. In industry has a lot of links and relationships with the People's Liberation Army. So what do you think of this uh, in light of what you said that we are decentralized in funding, spontaneous market-driven and the uh, other model, the Chinese model is very centralized large-scale bets. I would say to you that while uh, while in the United States there's a capitalist system and the small venture people and all that are, are thriving on a decentralized allocation of uh, money Uh, investments and risk in the free market system. I would say parallel with that and underneath all that is a foundation where the Department of Defense, the CIA, the Pentagon, all these guys are investing very large sums of money. There was a recent uh, article I read that uh, the Biden administration wants to uh, multiply the AI uh, budget in the Department of Defense and all that uh, by four times, uh, fourfold right away. So, you know, why now? So, this leads me to the question. Why isn't India integrating military, industry, academics? Why why are they separate silos?
1: Let me try and answer that. That's sort of very complex thing. But let me try and answer that. Let me first uh, tell you that from uh, I would say my knowledge perspective, because I, I sort of visit many of the IITs and a lot of the professors are good friends of mine. The academicia is fully involved with the, I would say, the government work that they do. Okay. And uh, I know that there are a lot of projects being funded, though I don't know the details and so on and so forth. And the academia is comfortable inviting people like me to talk to them, to teach, etc. Now, why is industry not involved? Everything, Dr. Malhotra, is a function of history. And history, in history, hundred years is a small time span. So you've got to understand, we are possibly the only unique country in the world where a company called the East India Company came to trade, okay, and ultimately ended up being rulers, and they handed over their ownership of our country to their sovereigns, the British government. Okay. I'm not getting into the history here, but then it's all well known. So there still exists a distrust because as I said, in historical terms, 100 years is a very small span of time. Uh, the US did not have that. It was not as though there was a British company which came, conquered, sort of sold something to the Americans and then gave it to the British. Okay. Neither did the Chinese have it. The Chinese had their opium wars, of course. So, I don't think we can compare the mindset of policymakers or people who take decisions in all the three countries. Having said that, I can talk from the point of view of academic share. They are fairly willing to listen. And they are fairly, you know, if you are if you bring in the right sort of skill sets, I, I have enjoyed my uh, time. I, i take some time off, go to IIT Kharagpur, teach there, and you know I enjoy talking to the young kids there, and so on and so forth. And they're fairly open-minded about it. And it didn't take much of a conversation with me. I just met the director at a breakfast, and I said, this is the thing I'm teaching. is said, why don't you teach it here? And he sent me the email, and it took off. So I think it's slowly starting, but that's something that a lot of mindsets have to be worked on. And those mindsets are because of a past history. And only only a lot of time will cure. it.
0: Good. I I like your candor. I think we have problems. We'll admit and agree. And uh, we are in sympathy with the fact that some minds are still colonized. I mean, the East India Company did a real number, and this is not going to go away easily. And we have to keep uh, raising these issues. And now I want to ask uh, regarding the, the the data democracy that you mentioned, which of course is a very key point for me. Uh, uh, the data democracy. Uh, what troubles and and and, and uh, for benefit of viewers, uh, you know, what Raghu is saying is so important. Uh, who owns the data? Is it anybody who captures it owns it? <laughs> in which case, uh, we don't have proper property do- property rights because certainly somebody cannot capture somebody's jewelry or somebody's property and be a squatter and t- it's mine. But in the case of data, that seems to be the case. So things the debate has started very serious way in the United States. Uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, all these guys are brought on Capitol Hill, congressional hearings, they're really grilling them. They fi- Some states in the US have filed an antitrust to break up you know, break up some of these companies. Uh, so you will see antitrust action threatening to break up Google, to, to do the same with Facebook and all of, the, all of them. And these people are certainly on the defensive. They are at the same time being attacked uh, from uh, consumer groups for uh, privacy protection. And they're being attacked from minorities that they have bias. Uh, there are a lot of cases where facial recognition has picked up people of a certain minority, because the criteria, as you said, there is no such thing as neutral AI. AI has to be told what to look for, what to optimize, what is truth, what is good. And so uh, the, the, since the training, the AI, the machine, the algorithms were trained on, uh, you know, mainly white people. So, so the, the, the people who are different <coughs> are seen as sort of suspicious and this is this is earth the the, uh, the the minority groups uh, there are also gender biases people are uh, co- complaining. so you know what has happened is that these trillion dollar market cap companies are also uh, while on the one hand they're expanding and very aggressive in their deep pockets a lot of lawyers and a lot of uh, p r people to fight all that. but at the same time they' on the on the back foot a little bit because they have government pressure antitrust wise, they have public consumer group pressures, they have minority groups on biases, people finding lawsuits. So, that's the scene in the US. And so, because of this tension, it's one of the battlegrounds, as I call it, uh, you know, the battle for agency, the battle for minds, for psychology. Uh, Therefore, there's a lot of churning going on. I don't see that battleground in India. I don't see... Uh, a pushback on um, uh, on Google and Facebook, they are, con- I, uh, they are considered like the devatas. you know they are the devatas and we bow to them and whatever whatever they want because we depend on them to give us the limelight to give us to make us famous. If I have more followers and more retweets and more uh, views, then I'm better off. And if they were to block me or shadow ban me, my God, my life would my career would come to an end. So we're becoming very dependent on foreign entities. And those foreign entities are actually taking our data, turning it into algorithms, turning it into psychological models with which they can, with which they can influence us and help, help their clients sell things to us, including political ideology, including religious conversion. I see that happening. I see that the, the Breaking India forces that I talked about in my Breaking India book are going to be empowered with machine learning, helping them figure out how to do this Breaking India job more, more with, with AI. Uh, whom to touch with what button, what what will he respond to, how will you get him angry, how will we get him to convert, whatever. So, this uh, large-scale manipulation of Indian psychology using data, big data uh, from India itself, all this being masterminded by foreign companies and Indians have not pushed back, troubles me a lot. Uh, I I, I feel that... uh, China did the right thing uh, 10-15 years ago saying, okay, we'll block all this because they're violating our sense of ethics and values and we will create many Jack Ma type people. And so, they have their Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu and Huawei and they got so many other companies. Uh, India doesn't. So, China became a producer while India is a consumer. We are proud that we have the second largest population of WhatsApp and uh, uh, mobile phones, of course, all foreign technology, hardware hardware R&D in China and uh, Android from US and whatnot. So, uh, you know, in AI and the applications of AI, it's very interesting that we take pride in statistics, which actually to tell me that we are great customers of the Americans and uh, we haven't created our own networks. Uh, Whereas China takes pride in saying that uh, we are the largest producers after the United States and about to catch up. So, what do you think of the dependence on foreign uh, social media, uh, helping them train their machine learning with our data, becoming dependent on it? I see that as a national security risk. What do you think?
1: So there is uh, I think Dr. Malhotra, you have not been fo- you might not have been following the data privacy bill I which excited quite a lot of controversy right. to the extent that the President of the United States when he was here, the previous person, Mr. Trump when he was here uh, last year uh, last year sometime, had to have a conversation on that. And I know that that is not something that many of the, uh, you know, players outside India like. Okay. That clearly demarcates data which should be stored in India. And that clearly says what sort of data can be stored in India, what sort of data has to be copied, what sort of data has to be given. Now, So I would think there are, again, two ways of handling a problem. One is doing it in a style which is debated, which is told to everybody, including the Googles and the Facebooks or the word or whoever it is, whoever you call them, you will hear their views, you hear everybody's views, and then say, this is the final decision I'm going to take. This is it, buddy so that's what we are doing that's good and so i would think that from a data perspective we are uh, we would i would think that we are there now as far as some of these corporations are concerned yeah they could be headquartered in the united states but google is headed by sundar pichai yes okay Microsoft is headed by Satya Nadella, and IBM is headed by Arvind Krishna. And if you look at it, the the technology itself, excepting for certain higher levels of technology, yes, we respect international patents, so on and so forth. But can the technology tomorrow be replicated as an Indian one? Yes, it can, possibly. Because a search engine is a search engine. But at the same time, you have two ways that you can live life. You can live life like one of the countries you are mentioning, saying, we are living by our rules, we'll be what it is. Or, the second way is saying, we are integrating with the world and through that, we sort of become one with the world. I guess, I guess, My nation has chosen the second option, which is not a bad option. It has its, it may have in the marathon in the first kilometer show you as possibly not the front runner, but there's this famous philosopher who said when asked in 1950 about the French revolution, I, I mentioned 1950 because we should listen to his answer. He says, it's too early to say (laughs) <laughs> yeah, good. Interesting. So, there is a strategy, there is a strategy in saying, yes, we recognize the fact that we need to own our data. But yes, we are not a country which says, we don't get up on one side of the bed and say on one, one day we say, you know what, we are, going to, we are going to ban every guy, we don't have to give our data, we say we are going to bring a law, it's going to be debated in both houses of our parliament. It's going to be put up on the net for everybody to comment about it. You, Google, or you, Facebook, or you, whoever it is, WhatsApp, are free to come and comment. Okay? Now, we did that. Secondly, there are many apps which are coming up, which are equally powerful. As I told you, the 10,000 startups, there are many apps. So I don't think it is as much as a national security risk as much as not developing capability. What you asked me about, maybe I don't know how long we have been, about 30 minutes back or 45 minutes back, you asked me, what are the three things I said? The first thing I said was capacity building. I think not building capacity is the risk. Let let me just take you through recent history, not very past history. Okay. There have been many IT companies which were the flavor of the season. There was a digital corporation no longer there. There There's XYZ no longer there. Okay. What happens, especially in the field of technology is it moves at the speed of light speed. I would bother if I do not have, I do not have Indians who know how to manage technology, who know how to create technology. That would be a big botheration for me. And it would be a big botheration for me if I'm not invited to be, I'm treated as, to use an Indian word, a pariah by the rest of the world. Sir, if I need to want to sit at the high table, I need to be invited to sit at the table first and I need to be invited. So, I think it's two different philosophies. Again, it's too
0: early to say. It is too early. I agree with you. But I do want you to know that I followed Chris Kopalakrishnan's work in this area of data, data rights and all that. I have a tremendous respect for him. I think he's the right guy in fact i mentioned also that you know with people like him involved there is tremendous hope uh, but a, a, as you said these policies are still being debated formulated they'll have to be enacted then they'll have to be enforced so it will take some time and we should uh, we should uh, give it uh, give it its due uh, one final by the thing, way he's
1: my he's a he's a mentor of mine
0: oh fantastic uh,
1: he's a mentor of mine and uh, and He's also a well-wisher of mine. So.
0: Yeah, no, no, I, I, I don't know him. I would like to get to know him, but I have tremendous respect for him based on everything. I follow him and I have a tremendous respect for him. So, that's a, that's an example of a very solid person that uh, is on the government team. Uh, my my final thing, uh, the, the, a couple of things I want to bring out. One is that in the midst of all these things, uh, do you feel that... Uh, India is overpopulated considering that one of the things that this Darwinian acceleration with AI will, will do is to you know, empower humans to be augmented with newer levels of technology such that you need fewer people to do the work. And so if India had fewer people, it would be better off.
1: Read the Economic Survey of India, Chapter 6 of 2019. Okay. That shows you the demographic trends. The total fertility rate in Kerala is today 1.2, which means only one among every five women in Kerala has two children. And it is below replacement rate. The TFR in Tamil Nadu is 1.4, which means it is again below replacement rate. As a country, our... TFR is about 2.1, which is just about replacement rate and is dropping. Okay. Uh, And of course, this is across, I'm talking of an average. Okay. So, which essentially means that we are going to reach the peak of our population, which we are supposed to reach in 2030. That's going to be reaching by 2025 and then going to start dropping. Okay. Now, it's, this has been achieved by natural means. It has not been forced. Economic progress, so on and so forth. And uh, the, it has also been achieved by some amount of investment into healthcare. Like, if you look at infant mortality ratio, is possibly nine in the district of kollam which is possibly the lowest in the country. So, I would say by the time these technologies catch up, you wouldn't have that population problem. Having said that, yes, there is going to be an irrelevancy of some jobs. And that irrelevancy is going to create some degree of social distress. I read your battleground number four. Okay. And... uh, that I think is a very interesting topic for conversation because before AI came, you were a man of some substance. Maybe you're a, or you're, you' or you or I were a man or a woman or somebody of some substance. Dave, when AI comes in, your job becomes a little less relevant. Now, that's something which is very rightly put. I think it's your Battleground 4, am I right? Yes. So, that is something which is debatable. That is something which requires new thought to go in by thinkers like you into new models of governance. And uh, I don't think so we should shy away from the historical fact that the Western ideal of democracy, liberalism, etc., is what we have what we have conceived, and it's it's held its own after World War One and World War II, and well, it had its users. But when there is an algorithmic engine which does a lot of things, what should be the system of governance? And what should be the sharing of resources. Do market forces still hold good? Do economic theories of wages, market forces still hold good? Those are things that your book is, I'm, I'm just waiting to read your book.
0: I have uh, spent most of my life uh, pursuing yoga meditation different practices for raising consciousness. Let's say the spiritual path. Now, this spiritual path, according to our tradition, is inward, looking for anand inside rather than outside, looking for unity. Yoga is unity, unification. So, unifying the self, the real self, not this body that needs gratification, but the real self and this neti neti to everything else that is material and bodily. And this taking me inside, which I, which is what I experienced and thanks to my guru, that is what, uh, you know, in the, in the early 90s led me to give up all my for-profit and corporate career and chasing and all that to pursue this uh, new work that I did ever since on a full-time basis. By uh, you know. uh, So, I'm deeply committed to that. Now, reconnecting in the last four or five years, reconnecting back with AI, which was my graduate student uh, days uh, topic, I'm learning that the present generation of youth are with augmented reality goggles, augmented reality goggles, looking for external gratification, variables. Elon Musk and the military in the US are creating implants where you'll be able to simulate various feelings so if you are having PTSD as a, stu- as a soldier, they want to cure it, they will push in some button and you will imagine you're on the beach and everything is great. Uh, if you have bipolar, then they can fix it with some nice feelings to replace the bad feelings. Uh, there'll be uh, fantasy vacations, fantasy entertainment. So the surveys of the young people, and I've done my own surveys also, indicate that the, the reason these companies have become trillion-dollar market cap with huge P-E ratios is partly because, it's not because of 5G and some new iPhone and all that, but because they are now going to promise, they're going to develop AI based products that will take the mind uh, rather than going inward, the mind will go into this gratification, that gratification. Uh, I may be able to enjoy chocolate without having to eat it just because they'll hack my brain, make me think I'm eating chocolate. Uh, with augmented reality, I'll be enjoying a dinner with my favorite, uh, you know, get, favorite uh, celebrity, uh, although that won't be physically the case. So this world of fantasy, this world of make-believe, this world, or this artificial world uh, with artificial gratification, Uh, I see it as moving the person in the direction away from yoga. I see this as rather than the unifying self and rising above the biological machinery, which is what our body is, rather rather than rising above the biological machinery into the Adhyatma deeper and deeper, this is going to actually, the quest will be chase this deal, get that app, sign up for this streaming service, uh, in other words, the external materialistic biological model uh, usurping the spiritual quest of higher self. Now, in my book, I call it algorithm versus being. This is the clash of civilizations. Algorithm being the external AI-based thing, getting smarter and smarter, hacking into my life and making giving me all the joys. So I don't need to meditate. In fact, some of them, some of the people told me, listen. What the yogis did in decades, we'll just be able to put a chip in you and just do it. So, this is an obsolescence of yoga and it is an obsolescence of the whole spiritual path. Now, there's two ways to look at it. This takes us full circle to the way we started, the Darwinian. The Vedantic way is that, you know, this is all maya within maya. In the world of maya, they created more another level of maya. And ultimately, this will not provide the satisfaction. This will not provide the anand, which they are promising, because after having all these gratifications and generating hormones inside me and endomorphines and all that stuff, uh, they, the, the person will, be disgu- will not be contented. And he'll go back to, after maybe a speed bump or a hiccup along the road, he will go back to the spiritual quest. That is one way. That would mean that we, as Hindus, uh, you know, we would, our path is going to be valid and move fast forward in my, as far as I'm concerned, I'm moving in that direction anyway, regardless of what they tell me. The other possibility is that uh, this is a Darwinian thing going on. And while, uh, the, uh, according to this, humankind's most uh, uh, ultimate accomplishment, which is AI crafted artificial experiences, is going to take over in such a way that it will obsolete the whole quest of the rishis. So, you, now you'll have this artificial rishi kind of a thing uh, uh, where in anybody who, who has enough money can subscribe to some new Amazon program so many dollars a month and get those kind of experiences without having to do any tapasya. So, I see this as the real debate that I want to start. And very few people like you I can talk to who have this understanding on both sides. So, what do you think of this? Okay. I,
1: I have a very strong view on this, sir. Okay, so, since I also read a lot of mythology, there have been times in, at least in Hindu mythology, when gods or powerful human beings, whatever you would like to call them, have created illusions. Coming 25th of December is the Gita Jayanti or Vaikodhya But if you read the original version of the Mahabharata, Vyasa's, the Sanskrit version, why didn't other people attack Arjuna and Krishna and why did they allow them to speak for those two, three hours? Because the Lord Sri Krishna I call him the Lord the Lord Krishna created a Maya so he created an illusion so there were special circumstances that dictated the creation of an illusion so in our modern sense this was a teleconference going on like this chat between us this was a teleconference going on and somebody like a brand created a you know, warp around us now. So this has always been a fact of life. On the other hand, even today, mentoring many people, many youngsters, I do tell them, look at precision decision making or precision medicine. That since I teach digital medicine. Medicine, like we knew it was, you have a mix of kapha, vata, pita, but then you sort of, today, it's the entire aspect when you know digital, you know how to precisely te- treat ragu for a different body chemistry rather than giving the same prescription to a Dr. Malhotra who may have a different body chemistry. Okay. And I also tell them when somebody comes and tells me, you know, I've got this beautiful job. I sit him down for an hour or two, I ask him, what's his chemistry, how does his mind work, and since I know that particular corporate, I said, this corporate is going to be aggressive, is it for you? Okay. So the person who is more contented, the person who looks within himself, the person who is able to understand his inner self is physically, mentally, a much more forward-looking individual. Having said that, there are times in life when some individuals are in need of sinecures and supports. AI provides them that. One shouldn't grudge them that. It is like if you take certain drugs, you know, uh, certain drugs like opium were used to reduce pain, but opium also has different effects. So the way I look at it is, if you are able to find the inner being in you, you know your strength, you know where you are headed, you know where your body is, both from a physical and mental perspective, your happiness coefficient is something different. You need to take a drug. Fair enough, it's available for you to take. And maybe the drug helps you after some time, as you rightly put it, at the bump in the road where you can get off the truck. But then there are some who who keep on going about it till the end. I just look at it that way. Sir.
0: So, Raghuji, I, I I must tell you, uh, I'm not flattering because I I'm I'm usually a very critical person, uh, but very rarely I come across somebody with depth and breadth, uh, with huge bandwidth, uh, and and uh, clarity, clarity, honesty, uh, courage, uh, and so I've met a new kindred spirit in you, and I'm very very honored and delighted. I, I want to thank you for taking this time. I hope this uh, week I get vaccinated soon so I can visit India. I have to see my mother who's 95. And I would also like to visit you and spend good quality time with you. Uh, because I think uh, there is a lot to discuss. And uh, in 2021, uh, I want to uh, kind of uh, create uh, conferences on AI and society all the themes that you, there's hardly any themes that you and I haven't talked about. These are the same, th- these are the topics actually. And I want to create uh, multiple conferences, seminars, uh, would love to have you involved and we'll work on it together. So to to close, I want to tell my viewers that uh, this is this has been a real delight for me. Uh, and uh, I see him as a friend uh, uh, in this journey on many levels as a Hindu, as an AI person, as a lover of India, as somebody uh, you know very concerned about these issues and they, I want to talk about them openly so thank you very much and namaste thank to you. you thank you sir.